0: Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stemcell.
1: It's my pleasure to start the afternoon session, and I'll introduce myself more formally in a little bit. But most importantly, I'd love to introduce Sandra Dillon, who is going to give us an account from the perspective, not only of a patient, but a patient advocate and a very important member of the whole ecosystem that continues to drive and accelerate um, research and advancements In this ecosystem As we heard about a little bit this morning
2: Sandra please Hi everyone Um, I think earlier today uh, You had a panel discussion about uh, Space And um, I'd like to talk a little bit About time Uh, I have a a rare Cancer uh, called myelofibrosis And it uh, Is scarring my bone marrow and um, inhibiting my ability to make blood cells. This cancer is uh, progressive, it is exhausting, and it is deadly. When I was first diagnosed with myelofibrosis, um, they had no cure, and my only treatment options were to manage my symptoms as I got worse. Um, Left to run its course, Myelofibrosis has a median survival of five to seven years. I was diagnosed at 28. And at that time, I thought of my lifetime in terms of decades, like many of them. And that was shrunk to years and just a handful of them. This is jarring. And as my time began passing, every moment felt so impermanent and so precious in how limited it was. And I wanted my time, this precious time, to, to mean something. To have value worth this, this sense of preciousness. I wanted to do something important. I wanted to, to change the world. But how? I'm, I'm just this one little person. And I have cancer that is killing me. Then it hit me. If I could just find a bunch of really smart, really driven, passionate people who are gonna do something great and we're gonna change the world, then I I could work with them and I could contribute. And even if it was small and even if it was short, my time would matter because I would be a part of something bigger. Now, I was thinking of this in terms of my work. My life might have gotten shorter, but it wasn't free. And at this time, I was still thinking of my cancer, something personal that was happening inside of me, something that was stripping away my time and my energy and my life, something that I would endure along with everything I was losing. But that all changed. I had the opportunity to join a trial for a new drug to treat myelofibrosis. That trial was run by Dr. Jameson at UCSD with funding from CIRM. And suddenly I was surrounded by these really smart, really driven, compassionate people, determined to find answers and to make a difference, to save lives, to change the world. Suddenly, my time, (laughs) my cancer, my fight with it, it mattered. It was making a difference. I started that trial over 12 years ago and since then this drug is fda approved and it is helping others like me and i'm still here (laughs) that acceleration of time from research to patient that is by design and determination and that changes lifetimes i am grateful to be standing here in this building. I'm grateful for what it means. I am grateful to be here with you, smart, driven, compassionate pe- people. I have time, so let's all go change the world and beyond. Thank you.
1: It is my distinct pleasure to introduce um, today this afternoon's panel um, to discuss the Alpha Clinics, which is a very special program that CIRM put in place years back. I'm Maria Milan, and I have the pleasure and the honor of being the president and CEO of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which is your agency. Just for a brief Introduction to those of you for those of you who are not as familiar with CERM, CERM was created in two thousand four through a three billion dollar bond initiative. So this truly was created in California by Californians. And fast forward to today, what CERM has been able to do is to build an ecosystem that in a patient-centric fashion continues to fuel and accelerate Basic translational and clinical research, as well as build the future um, workforce and leadership of tomorrow with our amazing education programs, which are supported by our institutions around California, as well as, well as build um, critical infrastructure. And one of our crowning jewels is the Alpha Clinics Network, which you'll hear about um, more shortly. CIRM's mission continues to be to accelerate world-class science and to deliver transformative, regenerative medicine treatments in an equitable manner to a diverse California and world. That means to the real world, to our diverse populations, to all Californians, including those from underserved populations. So that has been a major um, focus for CIRM, especially in this new era. Um, and you'll hear a little bit about more of that, that in upcoming meetings from CIRM. But meanwhile, just to introduce today's session, I want to um, proudly announce that the field is continuing to grow as, I think when we started this whole endeavor maybe six, seven years ago, Um, we were wondering if there were enough clinical trials in the cell and gene therapy space to warrant investing in infrastructure specifically to support cell and gene therapy clinical trials. Worldwide, the number of cell and gene therapy clinical trials is continuing to grow. This map of the world um, was provided by the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, which tracks clinical trials. And you can see that the majority of trials are in North America. Surprisingly, even today, most of these trials are being conducted by academic sponsors as well as government sponsors. And if you look at that, California has made a significant contribution to this progress. If you just even look at it in terms of clinical trials, not to mention the incredible science, um, which you heard about um, this morning and the potential for that. Um, So the Alpha Clinics Network was launched in 2015 and since then has supported over 200 clinical trials to date, industry as well as academic trials. Over 1,000 participants in these trials. So we're gonna hear this afternoon from our esteemed panel um, kind of some amazing um, examples of how this has all been made possible. In this photo, I just wanted to take a little walk through memory lane. Uh, we just took a picture outside the, the auditorium today, and as you'll see in the bottom right hand when you're looking at the screen, is a picture in that same position in 2016 in our first Alpha Clinics Network Symposium. And then you can see in the other pictures all of the following years where there were these symposia at the various Alpha Clinics. Um, so what you'll hear about today is just a snapshot of what's been made possible um, through this network and sharing knowledge, experience, and advancements. Um, so without further ado, what I would like to do now is to allow our panelists to please introduce themselves briefly and where they're from. The, the list is here. If I may please ask our directors to please introduce themselves, uh, starting with Dr. Abedi.
3: I'm Dr. Abedi. the Director of the Alpha Stem Cell Clinic at UC Davis and a bone marrow Hi,
4: I'm Daniela Bota. I'm the Director of the Alpha Stem Cell Clinic at UC Irvine, and I'm a Professor of Neurology
5: and Neuro-Oncology. Katrina Jameson, I go by Kat, and I'm the Director of the Alpha Clinic here at UC San Diego and also the Director of the new Sanford Stem Cell Institute, and very happy to know Sandra Dillon. Thank you for being here.
0: Hi, Noah Fetterman. Uh, I'll be the new director of the UCLA Alpha Stem Cell Network, uh, Stem Cell Clinic. Um, I'm the current director of the Clinical Translational Research Center at UCLA, and I'm a pediatric hematologist oncologist by training.
6: Hey, my name is Leo Wong from City of Hope. I'm also a pediatric oncologist and stem cell transplanter, uh, and I'm from City of Hope.
1: Thank you so much. And on the screen, um, can I please ask
7: Sheila to first introduce Yes. Hi. Thanks, Maria. I'm Sheila Chari. I'm editor-in-chief of the journal Cell, Stem Cell. And then Sean Turbiville.
8: Yeah. Thank you, Maria. I am Sean Turbyville. I'm the vice president of medical affairs and policy at CERN.
1: Thank you so much, everybody. And So I'm going to go ahead and kick off some of the some of the uh, panel discussions, and I'd love for this to be interactive. And along the way, if there's follow-on comments and conversations, we can continue to do that. But I'll also, I also want to make sure we cover um, a lot of the ground that we, we discuss so I may move things along. But I wanted to just say that this has been an incredible um, symposium so far. This morning we heard the transformative science described by um, – Dr. Blackburn herself, and that how that has actually transformed how we look at aging and what's made possible through understanding that biology. And then, of course, the, um, the amazing tools that were and, and progress in the science of precision medicine and application of genomics um, that was presented um, after that. And so, with all that, we then ended the morning with, um, with presentations from space. Um, Giving us a lot to think about uh, uh, regarding other dimensions and opportunities to add to the already incredible opportunities that we're seeing with the advancement of cell and gene therapy and science. So having said that, I'd like to ask um, the panelists from where you sit, what do you think are the most novel um, advancements that you've seen made possible um, within your program? And um, I'm going to go ahead and just... Um, let it be a free-for-all, but I guess maybe I'll call on um, Dan- Daniela Bota first, and then you can kick it off and tag somebody next.
4: Excellent. I'm happy to do that. So, as Maria said, we have been a network since 2014-2015, and when we all started, this network was just getting ourselves involved in cell and gene therapy. For me, the most amazing things is how we had grown into this time. At UC Irvine, we started with one study in retinitis pigmentosa, and now we are conducting 60 studies in 20 plus indications, covering everything from neuroscience, which is our forte, to cancer and to other degenerative diseases. So the impact of this growth that we are seeing in the state of California has empowered us to offer the therapies to many patients from all our counties around us. And I think that I'm going to tag Cat.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Daniela. It's great to have friends. <laughs> (laughs) Yeah, you can see that there is actually quite a lot of camaraderie among this network because we have really shared uh, the trials and tribulations of trying to do early-stage clinical trials, but also to develop new therapies with the partners in the room and our partners at CIRM, as Sandra so eloquently um, mentioned and uh, stated the importance for. I think the most important part for our Alpha Stem Cell Clinic is focusing on the number two cause of death in this country, and that's cancer. How do you get cancer? How do you eradicate it before it really gains hold? And that gave us the idea to tackle stem cell properties in cancer, whether it's with Sandra's cancer or with other malignancies like we've uh, worked on with Jim Breitmeyer and Mary Breitmeyer, who are here in this room, and they were in, I think, uh, one of the pictures there at City of Hope when we first presented how we make new therapies. I think the key is to be able to make the full depth and breadth of therapies. I think by CERM focusing on regenerative medicine, I would say we need people like Sandra to be able to have small molecules, biologic, cellular therapeutics, and sometimes in combination because the sustainability piece of targeting stem cell properties in cancer is not just important for us as scientists and physicians but for all of us, if we become patients, we need to have that choice. It's about freedom. And I think with CERM's very broad portfolio, we've been able to do that uh, with cerm 2 just as the one unique thing that is now moving to cell and gene therapy, even as a um, uh, biologic, as a monoclonal antibody, it substantially changed the lives of people with mantle cell lymphoma and CLL, And We were able to share that with our network partners very quickly. Um, so that's the case for Modad, it's a case for Danielle, and as we expand, city of hope of course and uh, expand to ucla in terms of opportunities i think that the key here is sustainability of these relationships so we talk about erudite science but actually um, the luxury for us would be to give up on these relationships that's a luxury that patients can't afford and i think if we stay united and continue to build these programs then we'll make newer therapies faster Thank you so much. And I'm
1: going to go ahead and tag Dr. Wang. I wanted to specifically ask Dr. Wang, I think one of the really um, dramatic effects that we saw when we formed the network is how the City of Hope in particular became kind of a go-to site for um, CAR-T therapy clinical trials. Um, And if you could describe that, and, and actually you are Involved in next generation CAR T programs. So I'd love to hear, you know, that uh, about that. Pro- I'd love for the audience to hear about that program and why it's so unique and uniquely um, um, uh, developed within this setting.
6: Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of a, a new kid on the block. Um, I'm assuming the directorship of a City of Hope Stem Cell, Alpha Stem Cell Clinic, which for years was led very capably by John Zaya, um, who's a leader in the field of gene therapy. In 2013, I was actually in Boston. Um, and, and the idea that an entire state could imagine and then realize the capacity to build a, a structure that would take lab ideas and turn them into medicines that actually helped people uh, was remarkable, um, even in Boston where we feel like if things come from another place, they're probably not as good. Um, but, sorry, that's a Boston joke. Uh, I left Boston. Um, <laughs> I was, I was actually very fortunate to participate in, in one of uh, the UCLA gene therapy trials for X-linked uh, chronic granulomatous disease. And we treated one of the first patients in Boston. I was able to see firsthand the dedication that CIRM and, and the scientists here have towards taking these things that are great ideas and great publications, but then actually improving people's lives. Um, and that was one of the reasons that I came to City of Hope, where, as Maria said, um, City of Hope had been invested in building CAR-T therapies for a long time. So CAR-T cells are reprogrammed immune cells that can seek and and destroy cancer cells, Um, but turning, again, turning that from a high-profile publication in a journal to a medicine that actually helps patients is an enormous undertaking, and it can't really be done uh, very easily at a single institution without an enormous network and support from a place like CIRM. So um, the contrast was stark coming from uh, a very highly regarded research institution but coming then to... uh, an institution that is embedded within the Alpha Stem Cell Clinic network where the focus really is on translation. It's on lowering the barriers so that patients can get access to these cutting-edge therapies and really making a difference. I'm honored to lead a CAR T-cell therapy trial for children with brain tumors. Um, These are devastating diseases, and kids don't have really great therapeutic options, unfortunately. Um, Much of the time, you know, uh, survival is measured in in months, um, if not weeks, and so there 's an urgent urgent need for better therapies for these children um, and and there 's no place better than California to accelerate that time frame to give them more time. Thank you
1: Thank you so much and and maybe in the next question i 'd love to hear are all of all of the programs here have oncology programs and how it 's benefited from being. Um, within institutions that have such robust um, regenerative medicine programs, and how even as you're in the clinics advancing the clinical trials, how the science, while it's continuing to advance, have really um, both partnered with as well as um, informed you know the next generation approaches and improvements. Um, so th- I gave you a little bit of warning there so that you can prepare. <laughs> and then um, I'm going to go ahead and let you tag the next person, please. <laughs>
0: I believe it's no. It's a good segue. Um, so we were traveling to Boston this summer, Leo, and my daughters wanted to know if, where in California Boston was. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we, we sort of, in California, we so centric, and everything outside of California is a different country and a different solar system, so to speak. And I, I think that's true. Um, just a little background about me. And you've heard a little bit uh, before. Um, I'm taking over for Dr. John Adams. Um, like Leo, we're both new to this, but I, I think both of us are pediatric oncologists and uh, oncologists, and <laughs> we and hematologists. Um, but I think we specialize in the rare and the ultra-rare. We are orphan. Um, phys- orphan disease physicians We deal with orphan therapeutics And um, both from industry and homegrown And what's, what's amazing to me is now I get to take credit For all of the stuff that's going on at UCLA and beyond um, And watching patients benefit Watching our own communities benefit From the diseases that 10 years ago 20 years ago, 30 years ago were death sentences or we had to do bone marrow transplants, for example, for severe combined immune deficiency. Um, these are trials led by Don Cohn, who um, I think deserves a Nobel Prize or a Nobel Peace Prize, depending on what you know of him. But you know, watching the patients that he would treat come in with um, looking like no infant I've ever seen and then over six months to a year having a normal, normal development and a normal immune system. All of these trials, and that's just one example coming through UCLA, but all of these trials are funded by CIRM. Um, they um, They are really pioneered by investigators who, on their own, are amazing people, but they need help to accelerate their therapeutics into the clinical sphere to patients to cure them. And I think that's where CRM and the Office Stem Cell Clinics really and and my role now, I'm just honored to be here um, to help accelerate accelerate these therapeutics. So I'll stop there.
1: Thank you so much. And then I'm gonna put another like, uh, <laughs> bait in the water about that statement about Dr. Cohn, by the way, who is a lifetime achievement award winner for the at the last American Society for G- gene and cell therapy a, a, an amazing award, but I wanted to say that don 's platform for um, monogenic um, gene um, therapy is something that also led has a multiplier effect across various institutions and investigators including at UC San Diego one of the homegrown programs that was made possible and we first heard about at the Alpha Clinic Symposium which I'm sure Dr. Jameson will talk, tell us about um, and so I'd like to then turn it over to Dr. Abidi
3: Sure, so I, I'm on uh, I'm the adult side of the uh, hematology oncology well marrow transplant uh, we joined Alpha Clinic somewhere in the middle, not at the beginning, it, but not recently either. Uh, uh, when we started, we have all these programs there uh, in in our university, in our uh, medical center, but none of them were talking, um, and none of them were actually moving forward. Um, we just didn't have an infrastructure to get them going. So Alpha Stem Cell Clinic gave us... Uh, this structure, you know, we were able to, you know, go around and talk with every division, every department, telling them that here, here. We can get you going from the pre-IND to IND to clinical trial. We provide all this structure for the cell therapy part of it. Uh, you know, having a storage areas, having manipulation areas, having GMP facility. Uh, we can manufacture these things for you. We can uh, uh, we can get it to your patients directly. And having that infrastructure really uh, jump-started lots of clinical activities. Again, we started from you know very few to uh, 30, 40 trials that we are running uh, right now, plus all the other industry-sponsored trials that uh, that's uh, that's happening. Uh, the other value that added was the network. Uh, so for the first time, we were able to just you know, go around and this has been the most collaborative. I've worked with many other, you know, collaborative groups there, but this has been the most collaborative, easiest group there. We had our cell phones. The directors have our cell phones. And we're talking so closely that you know every you know, every trials we're discussing and you know say, okay, we do we have this one. Are you do you you know are you interested to participate? How can we get it together, you know, as soon as possible and moving forward. And that has created a really good um again environment and going to the next level now with the stem 2.0 now we're able to get a lot more done at this point we have the infrastructure in place we have all the glitches of the clinical trial worked out uh, to be able to do it centrally and, you know with all the other groups there uh, together and uh, i think i think it's going to be very very exciting time
1: thank you so much i think we made our way through the um, in person directors and so i'm going to turn it over to Sheila, and from your perspective, um, you've been watching us watching the field both scientifically and, and um, from the clinical uh, translation perspective. Um, love to hear your thoughts at this point.
7: Yes, well, thank you, Maria, for inviting me to participate on this panel. I realize um I'm a bit of an outlier, but I really appreciate speaking with this group because at Cell Stem Cell we share a lot of the same goals as CERM with regard to supporting basic discovery and promoting therapeutic uh, development of stem cell cells technology. So if you don't mind, I'm going to take a step back and just introduce um, the journal to some people who may not be as familiar with it. And so Cell Stem Cell is a leading stem cell bioengineering and regenerative medicine journal, and we're published by Cell Press. Um, we publish about a hundred Articles a year. And so this ranges from um, brief reports and articles uh, reporting on rapid developments in the field. And more relevant for this audience, we publish clinical and translational articles, which are bench to bedside studies in regenerative medicine that span um, key inflection points uh, across the translational continuum. And so this ranges from preclinical IND enabling studies um, all the way to early phase clinical trials. And so From a publishing perspective, the two elements of CIRM that really stand out to me are this focus on strategic collaborations and enhancing access. Um, And so these strike me as essential ingredients for publishing at all stages of um, therapeutic development. What I've observed that's a little different um, for a field like regenerative medicine, as opposed to a field that's a little more mature like oncology, is that there's great value in publishing early data that leads to a trial. So for example, IND enabling studies, as well as very small pilot trials and clinical trials with small numbers of patients. And so um, with what CERN has added, it's this willingness and ability to publish at these very early stages is, is really enhanced by the kind of De risking and openness that comes from CIRM funding, as well as these partnerships that everyone's been talking about um, between the alpha clinics and their academic collaborators. And so, um, you know, I want to stress the importance of access here. Um, another aspect of this that has become more um, into my awareness recently is that uh, publishing these early studies that lead to a clinical trial. It's actually really important for uh, patient enrollment. And so authors have told me that um, publishing a paper in cell stem cell has been important for enrolling patients in first in human cell therapy trials using pluripotent stem cells because they could actually share with patients the safety and toxicity data on the very same cells that would be delivered to them. And so the fact that this is published in a reputable journal has really helped give peace of mind to patients um, and concrete information that they can take and discuss with their doctors as they're deciding what, whether or not to enroll in um, an experimental treatment. And so in many cases, what I've observed is this kind of transparency just isn't feasible without a partner like CIRM in the process.
1: Thank you so much, Sheila. And as we always say, Good medicine starts with strong science, so thank you for um, allowing the community to be able to share the science with a broader community. Um, And Sean is a recent um, arrival at CIRM, comes from industry and um, in the medical affairs field, and so it'll be interesting to hear what Sean has to say in terms of um, his seven months so far understanding what we have at CIRM with the Alpha Clinics and how he envi- how he views this in the context of what it takes to bring um, therapies out to patients, clinical trials and therapies out to patients.
8: Yeah, certainly. So thank you, Maria. Uh, first of all, uh, as Maria mentioned, seven months uh, on the job. Um, haven't had the opportunity to see every single site, but I can tell you from my experience from what I've seen so far, uh, enormous potential and hats off to the uh, you know, the, the alpha clinics um, I had no idea quite frankly that uh, the scale of activities all the way from manufacturing obviously to the clinic to the bedside, but also the ability to almost manufacture commercially manufacture therapeutics uh, when you think about the totality of the skill set. Um, And the expertise, uh, there really is no limit with respect to possibilities with respect to uh, therapeutic development. So incredibly impressed with what's been put in play today and look forward to uh, some future activities with the sites. There are a couple things, of course, that um, are really important to CIRM. uh, And many of the alpha sites are starting to take the lead on this. One is, of course, is the community, right? So as Maria mentioned earlier, there's a tsunami of uh, cell and gene therapy trials right now, approximately, what, 23, 2400. There's more around the corner. Uh, FDA predicts that they'll be approving 10 to 15, maybe 20 cell and gene therapy products a year, And if you think about the infrastructure in the community, right, um, not only the facilities, but also the patients there right now does not have the operational expertise, right, to be able to fulfill um, those type of therapies to those patients out in the, um, in the community. So that's a big push for CERM right now is to start teeing up what is going to be needed out in the community, uh, particularly the community care centers of excellence and to start building that infrastructure to support these therapies as they go out to the clinic. The other thing, and Sheila just mentioned on this, um, it, it kind of ties in Sheila's comments, um, kind of on the regulatory side to some extent. One is uh, a big push for expanded access programs. So those are becoming more and more, I think, methodologically unique. I think competent authorities are now looking to uh, expand the capabilities of those expanded access programs, almost to the point where they can be label-enabling label type of trials, if you will. So I think that's going to be one of the initiatives that we like to see as a value-on or value-add moving forward. And then finally, this also leads into sort of the publication, and that is the opportunity with the real-world data generation. Um, there's an enormous push right now, of course, from you know, the FDAs of the world and the EMAs who came out with their uh, guidance documents, but uh, the Alpha Clinics could certainly set precedence with uh, some of those filings u- utilizing the real-world data, so that's something that uh, CIRM would be uh, really interested in, in moving forward.
1: Thank you, Sean. Um, so just to um, tack on to some of the conversation that was already um, started, it would be wonderful to um, talk about some aspects of what was already brought up. Um, the platform-type model, the platform model for bringing therapies at distinct places forward together with the standards that could be something that's both understandable and brings comfort to the FDA and to the community, that this, is, um, that this research has gone through what it needed to go through, but in a more accelerated fashion. So I'd love to hear um, from all of the panelists uh, what you see as amazing starting points for this and where you see where we can go with this idea. Um, uh, Peter Marks, who's the head of um, the Center for Biologists at FDA, had articulated recently that he believes at some point, especially for, for gene therapy-type approaches, that there could be some... And, and, and he meant it in the best of terms of the cookbook, similar like protocols that we have for for the lab, manyatis, as, as those of you who've been in the lab, manyatis in terms of best practices, best methodology to get to a certain point that can be shared so that investigators and developers can then focus on the unique aspects of how to apply the front-end resources and approaches, um, and so that we can, you know, both de-risk that, because now there's an aggregate body of evidence um, and, and, uh, and confidence in front-end aspects of this, um, as well as promote collaboration and, and a learning environment. Um, I've said enough, so now I'm gonna turn it over to the panelists, if I could please start with uh, maybe Dr. Jamison, and then you could tag the next person. Thank you.
5: Well, I think, Maria, by being such a stellar physician as a liver transplant surgeon, we both worked at the same institution, I think you've humanized the platform. The platform is all about people. And we can talk about these advanced technologies, and we sound really fancy. Uh, But it really comes down to what Dad was saying. We all have each other's cell phones. We're on speed dial. And I think when you look at the people who are really driving this, it's the patients. And, you know, you, we have incredibly brave people like Sandra who are willing to show up again and again to say this matters. Um, but it also comes down to data. So I would say the biggest opportunity here is to democratize data through existing electronic medical record platforms. Um, Epic, I'm doing a pitch for Epic here, but there, there's no potential to corrupt Epic. It's owned by one person who doesn't take any outside investment, Judy Faulkner. And she has 150 million people on her EPIC platform. I think if we make a patient like me with all the genomics data that's available to patients on the platform, then we'll really understand who's potentially eligible for these trials for ultra-rare diseases or even really common diseases where people find they get into really common bad problems where they stop responding. And maybe Daniela has a trial for that, which she's often proffered up and shared with our network. Uh, But that would be, I think, the strength of what CIRM has really put into place, allowing us to bridge the gap between biotech and high tech and have AI, artificial intelligence platforms to analyze massive amounts of data, but make that available to the user. To the patient, and again, we're all going to be patients, so I don't use that pejoratively. I think that this is something that should empower us. Knowledge is power, and we really appreciate what CERMA has done to set up that communication platform. I think that would be the strength for us right now. Uh,
1: Dr. Fetterman, um, could you comment on kind of a platform approach to some of, you know, Another thing that um, we've heard from the FDA is they realize that with the unique aspect of cell and gene therapy clinical trials, often targeting smaller populations, but having large effect sizes that what are the opportunities with some non you know non typical BLA pathways for patients to access clinical trials and some examples in the Alpha Clinics network that you've been able to, to use those um, other pathways? Sure, I,
0: I mean I think it's there's so much to talk about. Um, I mean that's <laughs> I, I would focus though on what what CRM and Alpha Stem Cell Clinics have. Have already done and are doing, which is really removing roadblocks to to clinical trials, um, whether it's at your institution across the whole network, and working together. And, And so, you know, examples of that are IRB reliance. Those of you that do clinical trials and that are patients on trials know that you have to sign a consent. And each of those IRBs have to go through, often have to go through your own institution. You have to reinvent the wheel. You have to reinvent the wheel with contracts. That's master contracting, data safety. I mean, the list goes on and on, and these are all barriers to getting your trial through the different, um, the, the different roadblocks and getting it through activation and on study support. You know, from my opinion, and I say this sort of joking, but I think there's an element of truth to it, if academia can operate like industry... Like SpaceX, even a fraction of the speed of SpaceX, we will cure cancer and many other diseases in a decade. I mean, maybe that's a little bit um, a, a little optimistic, but I think the reality is is that we can operate like industry, and one of the ways of doing it is by relying on each other and not reinventing the wheel. And that's sort of a global, um,
6: my global thought. Thank you. Leo. Yeah, I think um, when we're talking about platforms, what we're really talking about, right, are interoperability and standardization. And and whether that's true for data structures or uh, clinical trial, you know, um, regulatory affairs and, and activation, or whether it's even true about clinical trial design, uh, you know, it, it's really important to be able to speak the same language so that we can learn from each other. And Noah and I are pediatric oncologists, and, you know, there are about 15,000 kids under the age of 19 every year who get cancer in the United States, which means that in order to do... Really important clinical trials, we have to work together. And so I think on the pediatric side, for a long time we've been working in these networks where we have common trials, we have common IRBs, you know, we all do the same analyses on patient samples so that when I say, oh, I found this signal, you know, someone in Seattle, it makes sense to that person. So, you know, for our our CAR T trial, it is a single institution trial, but there are four other single institution uh, CAR T brain tumor trials, and we're all working together to. Try to develop exactly what we're talking about: interoperability and standardization. I think some of those, many of those of of those institutions are not inside of California, but with this network, what we can do is is sort of think about that from its inception, right? So, if multiple different centers are thinking about trials, first, you know, how do how do we create efficiencies so that if they do open at multiple centers, it's really the same trial that opens in a bunch of different places. And if it 's not the same trial, how do we make it so that the data goes back and forth, the samples can go back and forth, and we all learn from the aggregate as opposed to just the individual?
1: Thank you, Dr. Betty.:
6: So uh, when we talk about the platform,
3: uh, i 'm going to give a different angle on that, and uh, uh, if you, you probably know about the cost of these and affordability and access, uh, you know some of these uh, clinical trials uh, i 'm sorry, some of these BLA is going to have a price of two to three million per patient. How are we going to afford that? Who is going to afford that? You know, California is going to go bankrupt, and California is one of the richest, uh, basically, state here. Uh, so can we use platforms uh, to make everything accessible and affordable? Uh, and this is something my group has been really focusing on, of, uh, uh, of trying to have point-of-care, basically manufacturing, point-of-care monitoring, uh, uh, you know, uh, monitoring, with the central monitoring at the same time there. So if you're manufacturing a product there, we have been doing this for, for the stem cell transplant for a long time. The stem cell transplant is you know, my area. We collect the cells from a the patient there. They sometimes manipulate, sometimes we don't manipulate, and we give it back to the patients there. Can we do it for the same thing for the CAR T cells locally? Why we should you know, centralize it and, uh, and have a price tag of uh, $500,000 just for the product itself there? Uh, so we are working on the platforms that we can manufacture individually, locally, in the point of you know, care uh, in each center. And Alpha Clinic will be really, really uh, a good place to start this. And then have a center monitoring for the data so when we go to FDA we can uh, real-time you know, in each center, actually, with, the, with the AI, we can monitor these uh, manufacturing, monitor the, uh, you know, do a you know, QA analysis there and show reproducibility all the reproducibility all of the centers there uh, to be able to have a BLA for products that we can have there. We, we're thinking about price tags coming down to, you know, 50000 versus $500,000 for products there. There's a huge difference there. Same thing with platform. We're looking, you know, uh, Maria mentioned Don Cohn's work. And we're looking at the same you know, idea as well. Do we have, we have ten thousand more than 10,000 rare diseases there, uh, metabolic? Are we going to have 10,000 companies with a $2 million price tag for each one of them? Or can we use the same platform, just, just individually come with the product there, but the process be exactly the same, so standardized in all of the centers there, uh, and we just change the vector in, for each product there and make this much more affordable there? So I think platforms... And Alpha Clinic will be uh, really, you know, the best place to do this uh, because of the resources and because of the, the collaborative effect that we have.
4: So I would like to close in a different kind of idea of having a manual and maybe a common operating platform, and that is in the way on which we approach our relations with the community, the communities of patients, the minority communities around us, the community of children, adults, and senior citizens, because many years we have done studies before the Alpha Clinics in our own academic centers, and if you look at the results from the clinical trials we conducted, many of those clinical trials will not be applicable to me and you, because the majority of the patients will be Caucasian, middle-aged, white, and males. So why I'm saying it? Because we are here working on a different manual, on a different paradigms, on paradigms on which the work that we are doing is applicable to the people that we treat and the communities that we serve. And we are all considering novel ways to engage with our patients, from community engagement studios to the participation of the patient advocates in our steering boards and steering committees To the discussions that we have with the physicians in the communities, because the cost of travel and the economic toxicity to come at one of our wonderful large nine academic centers might be a little bit overwhelming for patients from our remote or medically underserved areas. So I think this is going to be something very wonderful when we're going to be able to have that manual. We already have a lot of it done. And a common platform to work together to be able to distribute those
1: therapies. Thank you so much. And you bring up an, a very important point. And as we were listening to the scientific presentations earlier today, one thing that came up is the diversity in, in terms of the the cells, the diversity in terms of the, the, the background. And so when we're, we're talking about doing the best science, especially when we're talking about precision medicine, which a lot of the cell and gene therapy approaches are geared toward, how can we do that unless we have representation of what we're really dealing with? Because then otherwise we're developing treatments for only for very, very few. And so I think that those are such extremely important points, uh, Dr. Bota. So um, I, I don't know if uh, Sheila and Sean, you have something to add. Thank you so much, Sheila. We didn't yeah, forget about you. Yeah, I would like
7: to um, just build on some of these points um, that have been made about democratizing data and expanding access. Um CERM's focus on this is really important, but I also think that publishing has a big role to play here. Um, and so, you know, at the big picture level, obviously it's very important for scientists to accurately communicate the state of regenerative medicine therapies to the public. And that means both focusing on the progress that's being made, but also the hurdles to bringing therapies. Um, but one more practical way of doing this is through publishing papers and commentaries that are openly and freely accessible to the public. Um, And so operationally, there's uh, an important role for funders and publishers to play. And so funders like CIRM that value equitable access to treatments can also support access to information um, about the underlying sites with clear commitments and funds to enable open access publishing. And then on the other side, publishers also need to see the value in enabling open access to research, and especially biomedically relevant research um, like what we're discussing today. And so there's been a lot of movement in this um, area in the past couple of years and even months. Um, and so from you know, my part, I can say that since last year, all the cell press journals are either gold open access or ha- are hybrid with an option to publish open access. So, for example, at Cell Stem Cell, you would have the option to publish open access if your grants required it. But these changes don't just happen organically, it does take a real commitment from leaders like CIRM and other funding agencies and partnerships with um, the publishers to really continue to expand access for all. I saw there was a, a question in the, in the chat precisely about this. And so I, I very much do support um, uh, democratizing the results of, of these trials and um, basic science research.
1: Thank you, Sheila. Um, Sean, did you have a comment to that topic? or?
8: Yeah, certainly. I think all the panelists are spot on uh, when you think about the platform. Uh, when I think about a platform, I sort of think about uh, the journey, the patient journey, right? Uh, all the way from being diagnosed to going into the clinical trial, uh, you know, all the clinical care, uh, and now to post-marketing, which is becoming just as important, right? So, um, that is critical, and the alpha clinics are in a great position when you think about that 360 journey for that patient, not just up early stage, but also with cell and gene therapies, particularly for uh, the competent authorities who are asking for post-marketing follow-up data, and the payers will as well. Uh, the alpha clinics are in a great position to be able to provide those services.
1: Thank you so much. So that was an amazing um, response to a very important question about how we can optimize collaboration and platforms as well as um, increase access. So I think so for the final uh, leg of this um, panel, I'd love to hear from the panelists where you see the near future and the future future with space or without space. (laughs) As I think you called that floating research. Is that float research, Kat? <laughs> so, um, you know I always like to float
5: ideas. Yes, <laughs> float I'm research.
1: Sure. Um, where you see we're going in the near future and the not-so-distant future um, for the field, both in technology as well as approaches.
5: Yeah, I'd love to comment on that. I think that you know we've worked a lot on where stem cells go awry and give rise to malignancies or really dysfunctional stem cells, as in the case of hereditary cystinosis. I think the way the field is going is something we were talking about at lunch, which was our mini pre-panel, <laughs> and that's uh, precision medicine and actually applying all aspects of sequencing to patient care starting at birth. And that's something that's happening here at Brady Children's Hospital that actually CIRM uh, highlighted and said, you should work with Brady's. So I think it's it's these opportunities to understand disease in its infancy and really tackle it in the very beginning stages so we don't have people with advanced disease that don't even understand they have a disease because then it's much harder to tackle and that's where key partners that are Really, um, rocket scientists literally apply their very clever knowledge, whether it's Mike Roberts working with us at NASA National Labs or NSF or other organizations. I think bringing new partners to the table and bringing industry to the table. I keep uh, looking at Jim Breitmeyer because he's been our constant partner together with Mary. But remember... There are philanthropists, there's academic funding, but there's also industry. So I think if we engage the partners early, that's where we're going. Develop these technologies together and really have them vetted by Sheila. No pressure, Sheila. Uh, But really make them open access plans where we say, this is where we're going, this is where we think we're going to get it right, and tell us if we're getting it wrong. And this is where we keep each other honest here. Because our partners will say, ah, maybe you're a little off track, I tried that, it didn't work and try this instead. So I think the future is more about sharing, sharing data, sharing platforms, sharing technologies, but with that tripartite funding structure, industry, academia, philanthropy, and we're very fortunate to live in a place that isn't Boston, I think, where we share. That's a, a terrible dig at Boston. But, uh, you know, I think Boston's a great place. I was just there three weeks ago. But they're coming here to see what's the magic sauce. What are you doing? Why are things getting done so fast? Well, serum is a huge catalyst. It's developing a lot of interest.
6: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's absolutely clear that the sky's no longer the limit in terms of how how much we can accomplish, right, now uh, <laughs> scientifically. And, and I really look forward to being part of this as we move into, the, you know, even... Just discoveries that, that I can't even imagine right now. Um, I think the other part of it, the responsibility that we all have um, as scientists, clinicians, and, and public health stewards is making sure that, you know, your zip code doesn't determine your health outcome, right? We, we've got to do a better job of making sure that the, the best new therapies don't go to the people who have the most money or have the most connections, and, and that's a, a responsibility, I think, that we all feel very, very keenly um, and are really grateful to CIRM in investing heavily in.
4: So, I would like to add to that one thing that we haven't discussed, which is our responsibility to raise the next generation of clinical professionals, the people that will administer those therapies, the people that will supervise how those therapies are administered, the people that will produce those therapies. So, CERM has helped us a lot, not only by being a clinical network, but also being a clinical education network. So, I'm looking forward to see our next generation starting to administer those therapies that we have spent years working on. Thank you.
3: I think it was mentioned, the sky is lim- the limit. That's really correct. You know, when you talk about the drugs, you go you know, 5,000, 10,000 compounds, and you get eventually to one drug, and in you know, post-marketing that may actually fall apart. It you know, may, may, may not work well. Because, you know, when you're coming back to and gene therapy, Again, sky is the limit. You have the full you know, capacity to change things, make it better. You know, We came from the first generation, CAR T cell to second, to third, to fourth. I don't know how many generations we are now. Uh, it's just getting better. If there is a problem, it's solvable. Uh, and that's the difference between the, you know, the chemical therapeutic versus the cellular therapeutic there, that you can go make it better, same things, go back to the clinic, and make it work. You know, we went through the same thing, you know, 15 years ago when we have the first-generation CAR T-cells. It was working beautifully in the cell tissue, in, in, the, in the cultures. I was adding, you know, tumors after tumors. We were, you know, challenging the same CAR T-cells with 10, different, 10 times basically adding the tumors, and each time was killing it. We put it in, the, in a human. It didn't work at all. We learned why. It was, you know, we needed a co-stimulation molecule. We needed second generations, and it just went, you know, it's, now we're just getting better and better and better. And the idea of cure for the first time, whatever we did so far was management. The idea of a cure for, for the first time, is that what makes this so appealing and so exciting there? Uh, you know, Again, looking forward for the future, uh, I, I think we'll see a lot of applications. We're not going to treat the common cold with the cell therapy, mm-hmm. but there's many, many other things that we can do. And, again, I think we are all excited about that.
0: But we might cure the common cold if, if a patient has severe combined immune deficiency. That's true. So two things really quick in closing. Um, you know, uh, One statement, which is that I think we are here as the bellwether for the country and the world for how regenerative medicine therapeutics gets done, um, and, and I believe that. And the second is a challenge, and the challenge to build on what, what Leo said is how do we reach, truly reach sincerely the communities that we serve? And that's not just with next-generation therapeutics, cell therapy, gene therapy, et cetera. It's also with basic health care and education, which our communities often lack. And I think for, for all of us, that is the challenge. Um, so I'll leave that.
1: Thank
7: you so much. And um, Sheila and Sean, if you have a quick word. Well, I'll just add one point, and that is, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic, and I think we should be celebrating our achievements. But um, to this point about education, I think it's really important that we educate the public um, on the patients that's going to be needed so that we retain their trust and support. And CIRM has obviously shown itself a real important partner um, with patient groups to be a broker for this. Quick
8: closing comment. First of all, hats off to all the Alpha clinics. I think you uh, you have since you know, set the benchmark, not only for the U.S., but uh, as Maria mentioned, uh, globally. So um, keep moving mountains. You guys have phenomenal ideas and you know continue to support everything you guys do. So hats off to you.
1: Thank you, everybody. This concludes our panel, and I'll leave it up to our leader, Dr. Jameson, who um, wants to close the session and maybe take questions. Thank you.
5: Right. Um, Thank you so much, Maria, and uh, everybody on the panel, and specifically Sandra, uh, for reminding us why this matters and how personal it is, and to our friends on the panel. I mean, these are heroic scientists who apply science to the clinic in real time, and JT, thank you again for being here. I'm just wondering if there's anybody here um, that would like to ask any questions uh, we 've got maria who 's got plenty of energy. Uh, Jim Breitmeyer has a question slash comment
9: so i 'd like to i 'd like to provide a short testimonial to to this group um, and uh, internalal therapeutics that I have the um, honor of running has been um, vitally connected with sermon with the alpha clinics now for several years uh, we 're developing a very important ROAR-1 antibody that was discovered here at UC San Diego in a project that CAT was involved in in the very early days uh, under a CIRM grant. Uh, a phase one study was underway when Octurnal licensed the uh, portfolio from the university under a CIRM grant and was published in Cell Stem Cell so that we had uh, a very nice and uh, credible way to describe what the project was doing to patients and other physicians. Um, a, uh, a, a, a key Phase 1 2 clinical trial, which is now essentially complete, uh, was conducted with major support from a CIRM grant, and a third of the clinical sites were alpha uh, clinic sites. Uh, Davis and um, uh, City of Hope, and a major, major uh, contribution from uh, UC San Diego, and so uh, we're we are um, with all that. We have had the uh, pleasure of moving on into phase three. We're opening our pivotal registration study right now. We've been asked to consider. Um, working with CERM again on that trial, and are talking to people in the CERM office right now. We're delighted to have the interest and the potential to uh, work with CERM together again, uh, and and we're moving into what what all of all of you are are uh, vitally interested in a um, a cellular therapy, a CAR T, uh, again using uh, science discovered here at UC San Diego to direct. Uh, can to T cells to kill tumor cells expressing RoR1, and that's something that uh, again could also be uh, something that we could collaborate with CIRM again. So, so this is it's it's not none of none of what they've been saying is theory. Uh, it's it's real. It's it is um, in in motion, and it's worked in the past. And we're looking forward to seeing it work again and continue to work in the future.
5: Thank you, Dr. Breitmeyer. I think that uh, sums it up awfully nicely. We have friends in high places. Thank you.